Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody, it's just after 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night and this is Midweek Motorsport Series 14, episode 11. And, well, we're all back. We've all made it, sort of. Back from Florida, except for Shea, who obviously lives there. But more on that later on. Up in London, our executive producer is Tim Gray. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, John. And on a packed programme tonight, we have what? Uh, we have all the usual features. Really? We have our usual guests back, including Nick Damon. We have Shay from Florida. We have Johnny Palmer. We have a guest who, despite being a regular on the Lego Show Limited Network, has only made one previous appearance on Midweek Motorsport, really? as far as I'm aware. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure about that. And I'll tell you why when we get to them. Uh, we also have a game show because we haven't had one of those this year yes really? it's already March and it's a pat, well, pat programme have we got time for that we've definitely got time for it ok um, and, uh, and just to prove we're live in the football uh, it's still nil nil. it is oh no it's 1-0 in one of them as well ok good excellent uh, so a bit of have we got time for... I don't know we've got Let's time. move straight into the news, shall we? Well... Because I, I can feel the excitability... The excitability? Coming is that the word? It is. Uh, coming from the uh, Northampton to... Uh, Milton Keynes area. Northampton is Buckinghamshire, isn't he? Yeah. Buckinghamshire uh, direction. Yes, OK. Play the jingle then. All the latest motorsport news from around the world... Midweek Motorsport. And I bet I can guess what our top story is. Uh, Eastern Scandinavian uh, Formula Renault 1.4, is it? We will be having some uh, junior single-seaters later Uh on. So we're starting with Formula 1. Hooray! (laughs) Last, last, the wait is over. And, that and that's all we have time for oh. with that tonight. <laughs> that's the voice of uh, Formula One correspondent Nick Damon. Good evening, Nick. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, John. Good evening, everyone. It's fine, fine weekend. Weekday, sorry. Now that the season is finally underway and all the rubbish can be stopped and the, the, the whatever has stopped and the real racing has started. So Marvellous. the first round of the Formula One World Championship 2019 has taken place in Melbourne yes. around Albert Park. You know what the first big question is? How many Nine. laps before I fell asleep? Now bear uh, in mind. Now bear in mind. Just commentated on an eight-hour sports car race, which was at the end of the day. No, I just I just commentated on a twelve-hour sports car race, having already commentated on an eight-hour 
I fell asleep during qualifying, so, but I woke up for the last bit of qualifying. That was fine. So how many laps? Come I woke on. up for the last bit of qualifying. 28. 28, says Nick. What do you reckon, Tim? In the race? Yeah. Oh, uh, 13. Well, if that was our game show, Tim would get it because he was the closest. I made it to 15 laps before I fell asleep. Just shows what a racing philistine you are, honestly. <laughs> no, no, I mean, but then yeah, I watched it you... the next. Then I watched it the next day. That's all right because I, what I you've got fell to fell asleep again. <laughs> what you've got to remember you is, and, you know, and, and predictable as ever, Formula One. You know, with the with the obvious advantage that Ferrari held going into uh, coming out of. Uh, practice and qualifying and testing obviously Ferrari going to win one two that's what everyone said or no, yeah, no, no, everyone didn't stop can I just put my hand up here and say it's still going to be Mercedes all right I got the wrong Mercedes driver but that's the vagaries of Australia where you can't pass so and them getting the tactics terribly wrong but okay it, it, it's it's still Mercedes season Nick nothing's changed nothing's changed at all I think I think well no one well, let, let's well that's, that's three questions. One thing has changed, and the first thing that's changed is Red Bull are much more competitive. That is obvious. Uh, they are. In a Tell much me that more... when we get to Europe. No, I'll, 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 you'll see it in, in two weeks' time in Bahrain. They'll be closer. Um, don't forget, you know, Bahrain was where Honda had their best result last year with uh, Pierre Gasly in the uh, Toro Rosso. So yeah, they, they, they've obviously got happy with the temperatures. Um, it was it was a very 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 interesting weekend. Um, obviously, it started in in very tragic circumstances um, with the news of of Charlie Whiting's passing, um, which particularly affected me as obviously I knew Charlie quite well from the from the years when I was working um, in the paddock, and he was a lovely guy. Him and him and Herb, Herbie Blash and Charlie were uh, a fantastic double act. Um, the more ebullient Herbie and the and the more taciturn uh, Charlie, but yeah, I think the the, the the outpouring of grief and the uh, and the great respect that he was held into was was evident across the entire paddock. And the fact that they're talking about they need three people to replace him shows just how much he did and how well he is irreplaceable. Um, uh, a really great guy, obviously part of that Brabham uh, axis that Bernie brought with him with Herbie and uh, and Eddie Baker, who we of course know both know as well, John. Mm. Um, but just so sad and 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 66 not an age at all. It's it's just a really really sad situation when someone who's still at the top of their game is taken from us. And I mean, on on that, and that's a fair point that you've you've talked. We were going to talk about that anyway, but as you've brought it up, um, as you say, irreplaceable. But in in some ways, he wasn't the archetypal Formula One type person. I mean, you could say that of him and Herbie, actually. But you know, it's easy in any paddock, particularly at that level, to get rather caught in a uh, a reflective bubble, a self-reflective bubble. It always, he always struck me as having a bit of common sense and a bit of a sort of twinkle in his eye. I, I interviewed him a couple of times, but I didn't know him. Um, but it always, it always struck me that when he did say something, he was quite funny. He really embraced the fake Charlie Whiting account, uh, Mike's account, who he sh- and he's by the way shut that down, which I thought was very classy. Um, and he he had a bit of fun with that. As well, and, and as I said, that's not the archetypal Formula One person, particularly not at that level. No, I think yeah, he was completely apolitical in the most political environment of all in motorsport, and that was why he was able to always be respected, not always agreed with, often disagreed no, no, with, no. but always respected. And that is, he had that ability to to 
carry the group with him as an arbiter of fairness because no one ever thought he was playing sides. No one ever accused him of favouring one or the other. He, he, you know, he, he had ideas and rules and he stuck with them and, and he applied them equally both ways. And he knew where to look for uh, teams that were cheating because uh, when he was at Brabham, <laughs> he, was the best uh, at it. he was very good at that yes. himself. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think the term poacher, term gamekeeper was, was absolutely coined for Charlie. Yes, uh, it wasn't just Formula One uh, that he worked in. Of course, as FIA safety delegate, he um, was involved in a number of championships and would be uh, in between Formula One races, flying all over the world, uh, looking uh, for, uh, into safety in other championships certainly in the World and European Touring Car Championships, uh, the ITC when that happened. Uh, so it wasn't just Formula One that he was involved in. It was across all of yeah, international true. motorsport. And, and he touched, I mean, there were so many people in the two paddocks of the IMSA and the WEC paddock um, who knew him, Nick, and who had great stories about him. And you know, Wednesday night... Uh, Thursday morning in uh, it, it, when the, the the time when it came through to us it was Wednesday night wasn't it because we were talking about it um, on the air and you know as we were leaving on Wednesday night there was a lot of people who were very upset because he was that type of guy who was tremendously approachable yeah I, I think you know it, it's in a very spikier environment um, where it's hard to keep a friendship for more than half an hour and it's always as I said before so political uh, to, to rise above it and to command it as he did um, was a remarkable measure of the man and I think you know, and, and everyone who was touched by him in, in the paddock you know, all had positive words to say about him and it's, it, it seems almost un, unbelievable that the role he was actually carrying out could be so successful I mean, it's just so hyper you know Everyone just knows he was Charlie, and you know, we all. You know, how many times we hear the radio message where drives it? Oh, he's done this, and the team. Oh no, we've told Charlie already. Yeah, we've told Charlie, yeah. and uh, you know he would ignore the ignore the ones he had to ignore, and um, and act on the ones that he thought were important. So yeah, I mean it, it's a it's a terrible thing and um, very very sad indeed. And of course, mostly for his family. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and our very great condolences and our thoughts go to all of the people whose lives he touched, and particularly his family. Uh, as you said, 66, no age, really. Um, back to the race. Uh, the event well, back goes to qualifying. on. Back to qualifying. All right, really. okay. Um, no, I think I think because we were because we were all told what the what the pecking order was coming out of uh, testing. Um, you know, even on Friday when the Mercedes were fastest in the, in the first two uh, practice sessions, it was because Ferrari was sandbagging and running more fuel or only ran the hard tire. Um, but when it came to qualifying, the the gap to the front between the, between uh, Lewis and Sebastian was almost exactly the same as last year. Um, as Lewis pulled out another one of his um, SRB um, qualified laps off, he'd slightly mucked up his first one, and, and Valtteri had done a particularly good job, but he still managed to get pole from the Finn. Um, and that led to an all um, Mercedes front row. We had uh, Fettel in third, and then uh, Max Verstappen came up and, uh, and did a good job. And then we had, just very quickly on, on qualifying, big winner Lando Norris, fantastic performance, eighth, big loser Pierre Gasly, um, way back in uh, I think seventeenth because of a mistake by Red Bull. Well, I and the other, I'm afraid to say, the other, not so much a big loser, but an eyebrow raised at just how far Robert Kubica was off the pace. Yeah, I mean Although he, he did didn't get his second qualifying, run. didn't he? 
Mm. Well, yeah, it's right, his second run was, was stopped because he hit the barriers. Um, Which he did with... He, uh, he did uh, get abandoned. Did you hear his excuse? He, he did. No. What was his excuse? Uh, he said it was because it was the first time since he'd got in that car, all through testing and all through practice, that he actually worked well. Uh, and therefore, <laughs> he had so much downforce that he didn't break on the previous corner and ended up carrying too much speed into that corner. It's good, isn't it? I, it the car was too good, so I crashed. Yes. Or That's a great bad one. bad than it has been. Um, and then we got, the, and we got the race, and, and, and you know, and let's let's be honest, we we, we will have a, a new world champion um, at the end of the season. He's going to be a Finnish guy because everything's turned around uh, in three seconds of action, and now Valtteri is going to do a Rosberg and, and destroy Hamilton because apparently no, that's not. what's going to happen because that's what like, all the press has written, which is just rubbish. What actually happened? That's his one race of the season. Well, no, no, I think that. I think I think I think he has benefited from a couple of things. I mean, he had a, you know, the the extra weight he can carry and the, the the ease of motivation. He did make a very very good start, and Lewis made him an average start. And at that point in uh, um, uh, Australia, you're pretty much stymied. Yeah, particularly as Lewis then had to uh, defend quite a lot, so. Valtteri pulled out a massive lead while uh, Lewis wasn't able to capitalise well, no, on the but Lewis did, speed. Lewis had a broken floor, didn't he? He had a yeah. In fact, was at the end of the event. Uh, I think Valtteri went by twenty-one seconds. Like, oh, it's a massive victory. Well, the fact was that he was on the optimal strategy, not a suboptimal one, by having to cover Vettel. So it wasn't then nursing tyres of forty-five laps, and and Lewis had a probably a tenth or two tenths of a second a lap imbalance. So and also it's pretty pretty obvious from from what has happened that actually Lewis had given up about, about winning the race oh, yeah. and was just trundling around. Uh, uh, um, the, the the one thing that you said which I I think is telling there and and you've said it in two different ways. You, you said about you know everybody looking at Ferrari and wondering how good Ferrari really were and perhaps were they a bit better than um, people thinking perhaps they were a bit better than they actually are. Um, that really seemed to panic Mercedes because as soon as Vettel pitted, they covered him off. And that was actually a mistake because they could have pushed Hamilton deeper into the race, as you saw with uh, with Bottas. And the tyres continued to work. It was a gamble, though, wasn't it? Because they didn't know that Vettel wouldn't be any better on the other compound of tyres. No, that's true. No, that's I mean, true. It, you pay your money, was... it takes your choice. But if you, yeah, but surely I mean, I if think... you're going to sacrifice somebody, you're going to sacrifice Bottas, and and not. Not race one. Mm. Okay. No, no, they, they are, you know, they are even Stevens for the first few races until it's proven one way or the other, and there's no reason no, to, to, to do that. Yeah. No, the interesting thing is that the the net result was that Ferrari actually were a little bit worse than they were in comparison to last year and, and Red Bull were a little bit better. But if we remember what happened in the, the next three races, uh, in Bahrain, Ferrari won. Uh, in uh, China, it was won by um, the Red Bulls and, and Ferrari were the quickest. And then, of course, in uh, the, the amazing, wonderful world of Azerbaijan last year, we had an absolute crash fest. But in fact, Lewis won despite being the fifth fastest car. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry, for the fourth fastest car. So... You know, the, 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 you don't always. It's not. It's it's like football. It's not how you start the season. It's how you finish the season. Yeah, and, points in the bank are good, though. Points and in I the bank are good. Pretty sure that Lewis is far happier having Valtteri eight points ahead of him than than uh, oh. than Fettel. But but Valtteri makes uh, history, of course, this weekend. Twenty six points. Yes. Highest total ever as he, as they went for the. I must admit, I could not understand. I don't understand, and it seems ridiculous that they didn't pit Leclerc. 
Oh, he had that. 37 seconds, or 36 seconds between him and Magnussen. Pitt Leclerc, he, they said, oh, he's got some tyres left. He did two runs on the last the last mm. um, qualifying. So he's got one set of tyres, at least, which are, which are fine. So, so. But pit him with four laps to go. Give him two laps to go for it. Get the point. Which not, not only does it give him a bit of a bonus and makes up for him having, not being allowed to overtake uh, Vettel. Also, it yes. takes a point away from Mercedes. Exactly. Swing in the Constructors' Championship. It's like, what on earth Does the point count for the Constructors' Championship yeah. as well, does it? Oh, OK, yeah, right, OK. Yeah. Well, then, then it was I... then that was tactically inept by Ferrari. I just don't... Hard I, 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 course of Ferrari. I was going to say hardly a, a headline that, that's going to get people clicking on it, is it? And, and you think, well, why, why are you not playing this game? It's, you know, let's suppose if, the, if he was running 11th and he had a chance to get 10th and score a point, they would go hell for to make it happen. Why are they not getting a free... It basically, it was a free point. It was I, a free point. I, you, you weren't on the show last week, of course, because you um, were away. So, um, were you away last week? No, that's a week before, wasn't it? A week before. It's all blending into one. Uh, We didn't get the chance to talk uh, properly about this extra point, but only if you're in the top ten. Surely the whole point about that is to make Mm. it interesting for the people at the back. I I, I like the idea, um, but what I I don't like is the fact that it's only the top ten. And it did did create some interest at the end of the race when it was swapping around between people. And Bottas proved how how good his tactics were by being able to nick it again at the end. Well, he obviously, he had a, of the drivers, he had effectively the um, youngest or within two or three laps of Verstappen. Verstappen was stuck behind Hamilton. So he had clear air, rare for young tyres, a chance to turn it up to 10. And, you know, even then he was still four seconds off the, or three and a half seconds off pole time. But, you know, it was, everyone else, because obviously everyone else was stuck in trains or not working properly. That was the so, big thing that came out of the people that were there that was disappointing that at the start of the race, people were running eight, eight and a half seconds away from a qualifying pace. That's the, it's, it's the same thing again, because you, you, you're in a track where you cannot overtake, you can't stop twice. Mm. There's no, you have to stop once, because you can't overtake. There's no way you can make anything work. Mm. Look at how, how long um, um, yeah, Giovinazzi held everyone up for, um, with a very damaged car. Giovinazzi, it wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't actually going pretty slowly. He had, he had two bits of damage on the car and old tyres, and he could still hold them back for six, seven laps. I mean, this is the issue. Never make a reaction after Australia, because Australia is a No, no, exactly. And, we, and you said that in the, um, in the preview programme, which, you know, you say that every year in the preview programme and every year you are proven to be right. We'll know a lot more I mean, after China, won't we? Yeah, the next two races will be, will be much more telling. Um, and, you know, last year... Similar things happened, even though Ferrari won. It was obviously weren't the fastest car, but they came back and they were very strong. I, I, I get the impression that, that there's an interesting statement made by uh, an aerodynamicist. He, he believes that the reason they were having problems is because of the bumps. The car works really well aerodynamically platform-wise on a smooth circuit. Once yeah. it starts to get jiggled about by the bumps, it's, it's not got a very standard platform, so it's having problems. In, in, in roll and yaw effectively hence the reason they think they ran it smooth they ran it much more softer because obviously that makes it much more soft transition between the various pointing elements of the aerodynamics whereas the Mercedes in Craig staccato it's got a much higher overlevel of downforce um, with this you know outwash inwash wing argument I think the new front wings by the way do look better they make the cars look better um, from the sort of <laughs> above um, three quarter above angle but they're still, not the, they're still not the best looking cars in Formula One history, are they? Where would you no. like to go next, Tim? In our uh, form, I'll just remind you, you're listening to Midweek Motorsports, Series 14, Episode 11, and Nick Damon is talking Formula One. 
Uh, which driver has learned the meaning of the term number two this weekend? <laughs> uh, would that be Danny Ricciardo? No, carry on. No, I think uh, in a diff- in a different way. If you talk, yeah, if, you a, if you, you talk about bodily weekend. motions, yes. Charlie Claire. Charlie Claire. It is I. It is I, Leclerc. He wasn't allowed to overtake when he reached. Um, oh, are we in any way shocked that Ferrari have got team orders from the first race of the season? I mean, talked about earlier on about you saying Mercedes don't have team orders. I, I think you still have a one and a two driver. In a way, yes, I am shocked because I think. Uh, but in another way, I'm not shocked because it's Ferrari and they're tactically inept. Well, no, I, I, I does <laughs> does this tell you all you need to know about the fragility of Vettel's psyche? That he has to. The only way he can stay ahead of the young boy is to tell the young boy to stay behind him. Well, I think his car, his car had an unknown, unresolved issue. Yeah, um, the driver wasn't as good as the guy who was in the other one. No, the car wasn't working. Something was wrong with the car. No, no, it was. I mean, just, but he just fell off the pace, and that's not what happens when no one was going as fast as they needed to. You know, he fell off a pace that was already not the pace they could go. So he's obviously had some some sort of uh, mechanical or aerodynamic or electrical issue. Um, but they still, as I said earlier, what they should have done is said, right, Charles. I'm sorry, you can't overtake him, but you can't go for the extra point for fastest lap because Vettel wasn't going to get with a hobbled car. Well, so. it, was the, it was the fact he kept dropping back. A couple of three seconds, and then storming back up to the back of them, and then dropping back. I, I, I do think, as we said earlier, I do think they missed a trick there on so many different levels. It would have given Leclerc a nice fillip in terms of his performance, and it would have, in terms of championship, I mean, single points, they all add up. Um, I don't know, but never mind. Moving on, Tim. Uh, Pierre Gasly. Yes. Made his Red Bull debut, scored how many points? Absolutely none. Yeah. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. He, he finished in 11th. He couldn't even, he couldn't even be, be, be ushered past Danny Kivia, uh, who was in 10th. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, the car is... Daniel Kivia. Daniel, though, is another driver who, uh, when he made his Red Bull debut, scored no points. Yes. Can you name uh, some others? Uh, Sebastian Vettel. Correct. Um, I don't know, David Coulthard? And Daniel Ricciardo? Uh, Mark Webber? I don't know. All of them probably. I, I thought of, of all the things this weekend that I could possibly have been uh, disappointed about. I, I, I wasn't surprised at the relative lack of pace of Team Awful Williams, and they still are Team Awful Williams. They look all at sea again. Um, still. Um, I thought. Pleasing for George Russell, though. Yeah, well, you know, there's the upside there. But I thought Gasly was ghastly, ghastly, wasn't he? Um, yeah, he had a problem in qualifying, which they say wasn't his fault. It was down to the team not getting him out. And then once you're, once you're out of position, um, they tried to do things clever with the strategy. But he, when he finally came out, he came out in 11th and, and didn't have the impetus to overtake. So, yeah, the problem he had was that they're using a train of cars. So every single car had DRS. It wasn't like um, when Verstappen went past uh, Vettel, who A, was off the pace, but B, was on his own, so he wasn't getting the, the new amazingly wide-opening DRS. So, I mean, it's going to be an interesting uh, 
fest down in Bahrain where they've got these massive barn door openings and they've got that huge long straight. So overtaking is not going to be a craft in Bahrain, that's for sure, as long as you're not actually in a uh, in a train as such. Mm. Uh, one thing that I just remembered that I was going to mention, um, both George Russell and Lando Norris made terrible starts. Mm. Um, well, George Russell may have made a bad start, but he was still up a position um, by the end of the first lap because two people have pulled off. Yes. Uh, and Norris, I think, lost about four places, didn't he, in trying not to hit anyone. Do you want to talk about Ricciardo? I do want to talk about Daniel Ricciardo. Are we going to talk about him knocking his nose off? We can talk about that on a bit of grass. That was a, that was a bit odd, that. Very tough grass they have in Australia. No, because it's it's, he went over a kind of a, well, not really a service road, an access road, and he and, and you know it's like it's like there's kind of a dip, and so it divoted down. When he then went back up again, he he actually caught the front of the wing, so it was then in twist where there's no real strength in the wings, and also they're massive, and just ripped it off. Do these guys not do circuit um, track walks? Does does he not do track walks? He should. He should. He shouldn't have been out there. He shouldn't have been out there. He didn't need to be out there. I mean, you know, you, sometimes you have to back off in the first couple of corners. That's that's mm-hmm. how you actually survive the first couple of corners. But obviously, he wasn't in a particularly good mood. Things hadn't been going particularly well. He wasn't near the front. And he probably felt, knowing that Australia is impossible, or virtually impossible to pass that, he needs to make some some, some yeah. positions quickly. Quickly, yeah. Uh, what's his excuse for poor performance over the weekend? He was too busy pleasing other people. Pretty much, yes. And that exhausted him. Really? Well, the young man who's doing the training he's supposed to be doing, you shouldn't be exhausted by that. But I think, you know, it, it was a it was a difficult baptism. It was a baptism of fire. It doesn't really affect whether he's good to bad. I mean, he's now got four or five races where no one is going to give him, get, get, care about him at all. So he can practice all he wants and, and, and show what he can do when he's got no distractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anything else? Well done, Lance one? Stroll. Well done, Lance Stroll. Everyone, everyone likes to take the Mickey out of Lance, but he, he, he again qualified. Mm, but he does drive a good race, that boy. Mm. He's such a bad qualifier and such a good race. You kind of feel that F one's not really the uh, the uh, formula for him, don't you? He should uh, be an IndyCar, should he? And yeah. and also should say that whilst um, we've lost one of our good friends in the redoubtable Annie, uh, Martin Pass is uh, in the has joined the F one PR pack. And he was, looking after Lance? Uh, no, he was looking after looking after Lando Norris, and he okay. was in the back of a couple of shots in the pen. Yeah. Or it was Joe Bradley. I can't tell them apart. You never see them together. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can tell them apart these days because Martin now is about half the size oh. of Joe. <laughs> this what, could be interesting when we go. That. This could be interesting when we go to Mugello. All right. Uh, any more Formula One? No, but I'm looking forward to Mugello and watching uh, Joe doing his grid waddle. <laughs> oh, goodness me. All right, Nick, don't go too far away because uh, we need you for a couple of other things, uh, including... Game show. Game show and motorcycles, if that's all right with you. We covered four races last weekend, four races in four days and over 50 hours of... Uh, live broadcasting from Sebring International Raceway. Um, and by the way, thanks again to Michelin Tire North America and uh, Michelin Tire US uh, Air rather, and Porsche Car North America for their help with the FIA WEC coverage. And we'll talk about that uh, a bit later in the programme. But let's speak to Shea Adam, first of all, about the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring presented by Advance Auto Parts. 
12 hours. We had a big four-hour chunk in the middle that went green and was stunningly exciting. Um, uh, Jeremy and I were getting transfixed for that. In fact, we were both meant to have some time off in the middle of that, and we didn't do it because you just couldn't take your eyes off her from start to finish. We saw some truly spectacular drives from people during that chunk, uh, it, even during the rain at the beginning. I mean, the way that the Cadillacs were able to roar to the front, got to give credit to the drivers for keeping it on the black stuff during that, or the gray stuff as it is in Sebring. But yeah, during that middle chunk, it was just sort of mesmerizing to watch everybody go around and watch the gaps shrinking as the track was drying out. It, it was pretty fun. Uh, the, the things that struck me about the whole race, Penske and Porsche um, are prone to poor performance in precipitation. Oh, I should have written that down, actually. Alliteration. Um, well done. <laughs> uh, they just couldn't get it right when it was wet, and they both stopped early. Um, something that will be looked at, no doubt. Uh, um, Michelin uh, alluded to the fact that they had some feedback for the teams. Um, the difference was that Porsche came back and Penske kind of didn't. But in the middle yeah. of the... I mean, the GT battle was great all the way through. And even right at the start, when the Porsches dropped respectively one and two laps back, the 912 didn't get a lap back when it should have. Um, in fact, no, both of them dropped a couple of laps, I think. No, they both went down one lap, but the 911 did the wave around correctly and the 912 didn't. Did so, yeah, they so the 911 the got the lap back. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually the 912 did as well. Yes. Uh, but stunning drives in the middle. I mean, the, the Ford was the quickest car. No oh. doubt about it. By, not by a lot, but by enough that makes a difference nowadays. Scott yeah. Dixon, absolutely brilliant. Sebastian, Bo- I mean, all the Ford drivers were great, and it, it yeah. seems it seems a bit churlish to to single them out. But Dixon and Bordier, they were right on it. Completely agree with that. I mean, looking at the fastest single laps from the drivers, and even when you go out even further and look at sort of what people do amalgamating the data over top 15 or top 20 laps, you've got Dixon, Westbrook, and Bourdais as the top three drivers. Mm. Either way you do it, their names are rearranged over the course of how you break down the laps, but those three guys were head and shoulders above everybody else just in terms of consistency and pace. And that's not to say that anybody else was a slouch because five of the six fastest drivers over one lap over the course of the race, not including the entire weekend, five of the six were four drivers. So clearly they had better cars beneath them and more confidence in the track and also what they had to be able to go after the win. Got to give a massive shout out to Scott Dixon because he has never won Sebring. He's I don't he think he's even it. stood on the podium of Sebring, John. No, he wants it. You could see the way he was hustling yeah. that that car around. Uh, the entire 67 Ford crew, by the way, really on form at the weekend. Yes. Yeah, completely agree. And and my heart breaks for Ryan Briscoe um, mm. because you go back and you watch the video that he did the next day talking about his emotions. Uh, and that's not his that normal ending. form, is it? He normally doesn't post no. stuff like that. No, no, no. He He's somebody who actually was struggling to try and figure out how to put a long video up on Instagram because he's never done a video that's longer than a couple of seconds before. But the whole 67 crew, they were having troubles earlier on in the weekend. The rain was their blessing in disguise. It really came and sort of glued the whole team together. 
and really got them to the front. And I, I do feel bad for Ryan with his contact with Andy Lally and more on that a little bit later. Mm. But between Bourdais drive after he didn't get to really race last weekend in St. Petersburg, having the engine issues so early on in the race, you can tell that there's a fire beneath that guy. <laughs> uh, uh, Got to mention uh, Tonio Garcia as well. And in fact, the, the whole of the three Corvette crew, because they were doing oh. the, the crew and the drivers were doing double duty. They did the eight hours on the Friday night as well, which, of course, didn't finish till midnight. So they, w- they would have been in bed a very short time indeed. But Nick Tandy and the 911 crew do it again in the big race, in the Brumos colours. 72nd class win for Porsche. I mean, a huge, huge turnaround in fortunes for that car within the 12 hours and Tandy was by no means the quickest driver on uh, on the track when you look no. at the whole race but when it mattered he was fast he was decisive in his overtaking maneuvers he was brilliant through traffic and key he was super consistent he was Nick Tandy he uh, pulled down the belts when it mattered and went for it and ultimately got the win um, but it's funny because now we have another situation John Pink Pig wins Le Mans, mm. only time we see that livery all year. The um, Mobile One Mobile One car goes to Petit Le Mans, wins the race, only time we see that livery. Well, we saw the Brumos livery at Daytona, didn't get the win. Now we've seen it at Sebring. I wonder if Porsche might just retire every time they do a throwback livery and that one wins and then bring out another one. Well, so the, I know that... Doctor, uh, uh, Daniel Ambruster was saying, the man at the head of Porsche Motorsport USA, um, that it will be back to its normal uh, red, white and black colours for Long Beach, but there are plans afoot to either revive the Brumos car later in the year or bring something else on. Yeah, I, I think they need to keep bringing these new throwback liveries out and then every time the car wins in that, then retire they can retire it. it. Like it. That it just sort of feels fitting in the way that it's been going. Before we move away from GTE then, GT Le Mans, sorry, uh, the the car that actually won, if you look at the averages, uh, was by no means the quickest car uh, across the <laughs> across the race or indeed the week. So even right, took pole that, position. Took pole position. Yes, took pole position in in the qualifying in the dry. And Porsche knew that if it was going to rain, they were going to struggle because we saw that during Daytona. Daytona yeah. When it was dry, they were fast. At the end of the race, Lawrence Vantor, and this is important, Lawrence Vantor was three seconds off the pace of everybody else. Yeah. Could not keep up with the rest of the field in the rain. We saw exactly that at Sebring. We thought it was maybe that they missed a little bit on their tire pressures, which they admitted they did, but it was a lot more than that. They struggle on straight line speed in the wet. They just can't get the car hooked up. So Porsche doing a big uh, dry dance for the rest of the season. Yes. But because it was the slowest Porsche that won, we're not likely to see a big BOP change, if any at all, before Long Beach. Because it wasn't the fast Porsche no. that won. It wasn't the one that needed help. Um, before we take, go away from GTs, GT Daytona, um, Lamborghinis battling it out at the front oh. of the field. <laughs> uh, Andy Lally got... He was close. And, and I, Do you reckon if that hadn't been uh, uh, his <laughs> manufacturer, it might have got a little more physical? He actually fessed up and <laughs> said... <laughs> If it wasn't another Lamborghini in front of me, I would have put a bumper to him in turn five and nerfed him off the track. <laughs> His words. So that's Andy Lally for you. Having come home with a win in the race in 2014, he knows what it's like to put your name amongst the gods who have won Sebring before. 
And he really, really wanted to do that again. But he also understood that if he knocked another Lamborghini off the track and then maybe damaged his in the process, yeah, that wasn't going to look great back in Italy. No, indeed not. Uh, and GTT, Catherine Legg, I thought was brilliant. Uh, she had a huge amount of pressure lit on from, well, in fact, came out the pits at two or three cars lengths over Jerome Blakemolen, one of the yeah. best GT drivers in the world, and put 13 seconds on him <laughs> in the space of a stint. It was quite the drive. And and everybody in that car, we got to give credit to Bia and Christina too. Christina particularly in oh, the Christina wet did off the start of the race. Fabulous stints in the wet. Yep, completely agree. And and Bia more than held her own in the middle of the race too. Kat definitely was a superstar. And she's, you know, in the middle of this swing. She goes back to China this weekend for the Jaguar I-Pace series uh, over there driving the electric car. So she's looking for another win in that series. But definitely coming into Sebring, she was looking so, so strong that I thought she had a good shot. But but what about the GRT, the Grasser Racing Team, and in particular our friend Rick Broikers? Um, yes. He is still batting a 1,000 in his U.S. career. He's never lost uh, an IMSA race. He, and the only race that he hasn't won in the U.S. was uh, Creventic 24-hour when the car quit on him. Remember mm-hmm. the Sayat? That was in the mm-hmm. race that you were doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Rick might want to look at coming and racing in IMSA more often. And, and we always love seeing Evo, so I wouldn't mind that either. I'll have to <laughs> tell the boys in the IMSA paddock, well, I've, I've beaten them. Um, yeah, so, exactly. You know, come on, guys. What you what you're doing? Um, so another big win for GRT. I just wonder if they think they weren't meant to do Sebring. I just wonder what they're thinking of for the the rest of the season. There is a bit of a problem uh, already starting to rear its head in GTD, and that's about uh, IMSA's driver rankings. Uh, remember, dear listener, that last year Madison Snow um, was re. Um, categorized by IMSA away from his FIA st- uh, standing, for, away from his uh, silver standing and, and recategorized as a, as a bronze because of his uh, performance against his teammate. Um, he was the only full-time driver that was recategorized by the driver committee, as it is in IMSA. I said at the time, I thought it was dangerous. Paul Walter came on and explained it. I thought very, very well. It's a complex a complex set of circumstances, but we've got something bubbling up here, and Spencer Pumpelli is going to be the person who's who everyone is pointing at at the moment. The fastest driver over the course of the weekend in GTD, and Spencer, who fought really hard to be recategorized as a silver. If you want to read somebody who's inside this world's opinion, David Hennemeyer Hansen actually made a really good argument about Spencer. Um, he's not backwards in so coming strong. forwards, is DHS, no. and, and he does like a bit of, of social media controversy. Yes, um, but what he said was very sensible, and I, I do have to say that parts of it I agree with. Um, and by the way, on the Madison Snow note, it was great to see him in the paddock this weekend. He great. came and surprised Brian Sellers. He sat on the Paul Miller pit box with his headphones on, and the crew guys were joking with him, saying, hey, go get your helmet. It's time for your stint. I, I really missed that kid, and it was wonderful to see him back. So what did DHH say about um, Pumpelli? Oh, the... I would have to find the tweets again. Right, but okay. it, it was it was basically saying that it, his speed versus everybody else and the fact that he was faster than Andy Lally in the exact same car yeah. just says that you can't allow sneaky silvers yeah. like him into the series when you're not allowing people like Madison in. Yeah, 
Agreed. Agreed. Uh, let's go to DPIP2. Just the two cars, sadly, but we kind of knew that was going to happen. Um, can't blame either of the two entrants, and well done to them. They put a great show on in, in qualifying, where pole position changed three times in the last lap. Uh, last two laps, rather. Um, and D- go on LMP2, just before we move on, can I just give a round of applause? We can now talk about it. Cameron Castles was racing mm. with broken ribs yeah, and managed to win the know. class. Yeah, didn't want to yeah, let anybody that's... know. That must have Super been awful. Impressive. I've done that before, and it's awful. You can, I mean, it's it's bad enough walking around and sitting down, never mind being shaking around in a car. Um, at the front of the field, DPI. Um, I mean, ultimately, the Cadillacs always look strong. Mazda, again, had the speed, didn't get to the end. A very bizarre battery box or battery short fire for Timo Bernard. Uh, the yeah. second car had problems as well. The two Acuras, well, Montoya gets away with another bump and run, um, which, I, I honestly, I think that's as, as blatant as anything I've seen. Obviously, the guys in race control have got more views than we have. At least they fought back uh, to get somewhere near the sharp end of the field. But ultimately, the Cadillacs dominated the front end of the field. And Felipe Nazar and Pete Durrani, along with Eric Curran, who I thought did a stellar job in difficult conditions. But those yeah. two young drivers, they, they were again... I mean, Nasser, he's, he's pure class. We know what Pete was like. Those two guys, they were just unbelievable. Yeah, they really were. Uh, people who has an affinity for Sebring, that's unlike what we've seen for a long time. Consider that there are only four drivers with more overall wins at Sebring than people at this point. Their name's Christensen, Capello, <laughs> McNish, and I think the last one is Bela? No, um, I'll, I'll look it up. But in any case, mm. all factory Audi drivers. Right who won the 12 hours of Sebring overall. Then you look at Pipo Durrani, who has won. Now, keep in mind, in the last four years, he's won three times, once with the Cadillac this year, once with Honda Power, and once with Nissan Power. That is pretty spectacular. Colin Brown was pretty good in the Core Autosport car. Um, It it looked like it might have been him with a chance of a podium for a a little while. just a, a thought on that before we go to the points. In IMSA. And don't forget, we're on the streets of Long Beach, so it's not the full classes next time out uh, at Long Beach. And it's, we go from uh, one of the longest races of the year, the second longest race of the year, to the shortest race of the year by some margin. Um, I, uh, we talked about with Nick earlier on in Formula One segment about the fastest lap point and how that affected people. What we saw at the weekend and it caught us out not once but twice in our defence we were very very tired um, but um, amazing tactical nous by a couple of teams who didn't exactly put their 12 hour race in jeopardy but were prepared to make tactical changes in order to secure points in the endurance championship at and four, four very, and eight hours for very good reason too, John, because coming out of the 12 hours of Sebring, keep in mind the next time we're going to need to look at the Michelin Endurance Cup championship points will be in the end of June, first week of July. So we've got a long time before we need to think about them again. But going into that race, we are already halfway through this cup. Mm-hmm. Eric Curran, Felipe Nessa, Jordan Taylor, Pipo Durrani, Ranger Van de Zanda tied on 28 points. They have a seven-point advantage yeah. over the rest of the field in prototypes. That's why we saw the Action Express crew pitting when they did. They were trying to get the five car back into it, 
but they were also trying to make sure that the 31 stayed ahead in points and they were trying to beat the Wayne Taylor racing guys in effect. The other team that was so cognizant of that comes as no surprise, Bill Riley's organization. He is always thinking about this championship well, they've because made a habit team of winning has won it. it the last yeah. three years. Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. They have 25 points. Second are the Grasser Racing Crew, who probably aren't going to do the Glen because it's a conflict weekend for them in a championship that they run full-time in Europe. Right. Third is 18 points. So right. that's already a seven-point advantage. Basically, it means that if the 33 crew goes through and wins the class each time at Watkins Glen, they almost don't even have to turn up at Petit Le Mans to, to claim the cup. Because the points differential is so different. In the main championship, exactly. we've got a tie in the prototypes at the top. Yes, uh, an exact tie because the 31 car that finished second at Daytona won and the 10 car, which won Daytona, finished second at uh, Sebring. Not at all confusing. So they are tied together on 67 points. In third place, it's Elio and Ricky, uh, Ricky Taylor, the other Taylor. They are on 58 points, so by no means out of it. Uh, and that's and then- at least some degree of... Uh, um- a little bit consolation. of consolation, thank you, <laughs> for the Penske yes. team, the Acura team, Penske guys. And in yeah. uh, next place up? Well, those two guys, keep in mind, they finished third at Daytona and fourth at Sebring. So they right. did manage to claw back some good points. But fourth in points, this is where things start to get really interesting. Team Portugal, as I'm going to call them for the rest of the year, because it's João Bravos and Philippe Albuquerque, they're tied with Colin Brown and John Bennett on 54 points. So those guys who finished second in the championship overall, they're not letting the big, big organizations run away again this year either. No, and GT Le Mans, um, we've got Philippe Eng leading, <laughs> but we won't see him, probably won't see him again to, well, will we? Oh, the Petit, he'll be back at Petit, is he? Yep. Okay. Yeah, we, we probably won't see him at Watkins Glen the week before he'll have been, or two weeks before he'll have been at Le Mans. I don't know if he's going to be doing Nürburgring, but we're not expecting to see Philip back until uh, October. So that means that even though Philip Bang has 63 points, Patrick Pile and Nick Tandy lead the championship on 61. Next up is Connor Filippi because he will be driving solo. Uh, he has 59 points, so he's only two. Yeah, when you say solo, person. you mean he's going to be the only constant <laughs> yes. in that BMW through the year because yes. Tom Blomqvist couldn't make it to uh, Daytona. Daytona, yes, correct. So just keep in the back of your mind, 61 points is the number right now that we're all looking at. In third place... Joey Hand and Dirk Mueller are tied with Bam Bam and Larry, so Earl Bamber and uh, Lawrence Vantor. They have 56 points, so they're only five points down off of their teammates. Then we get Garcia and Magnuson, mm. 55 points. Tight. Richard Westbrook, Ryan Briscoe, 53 points. Yeah. Yessie Crone and John Edwards, 50 points. And then Tommy Milner and Ollie Gavin on 46 points, which means that the entirety of the field is spread out over 15 points. Yeah. Why is this a big deal? Because we have eight cars every weekend. So that means that our championship swing could be 11 points on any given weekend. Yeah. GTD, obviously the Grasser team have won both races with the 11 Lamborghini. But as far as we know, won't be doing um, very much of the rest of the season. They might come back for it to potato. I wonder if they might put an effort in to, into the um, Michelin, uh, Michelin Endurance Cup. So that by your calculations that I'm looking at here, 
leaves the Frankly Monty Calvo and Townsend Belcar on top with 54 points. But that again, it's, we're only two races in, but very, very tight indeed. Yeah, but the the interesting thing about this year, having the championship won, well, the, the two first races, 35 points taken away for the wins for both of those, yeah. which in effect takes away an additional six points over anybody else who would have then won the race. So there's not as much of a buffer as there could be. Montecalvo and Bell lead one point above Andy Lally and John Potter, who are one point above Mario Farnbacher and Trent Hinman, who we were talking about a little bit earlier, one point ahead of Ben Keating and Jerome Bleakmullen, who are two points ahead of Patrick Lindsay and Patrick Just Long. So close. It's incredibly close. And we're and is not that, is used that to car, is the Lindsay and Long car, is that just the parts afterwards? It becomes the Patmobile yes. for the rest of the season. Yep, Patmobile from here on out. Right, okay. Uh, the developmental series, congratulations to Stephen McAleer, uh, who we've got a, a, a lot of time for on this programme. If you cast your mind back a long time, we had him on the programme when he was trying to find money to go back to the States when he was literally stacking shelves, having won the Skip Barber series, uh, Challenge Series out uh, in the States and then couldn't get another drive and went back and and there he was winning the Prototype Challenge early on in the week and in the Michelin Pilot Challenge uh, and that was a cracking race as well. And, and by the way, IMSA have already got that up. They had that up earlier on in the week, the full two hours with the IMSA radio, radio commentary on. Uh, if you go to the IMSA YouTube page, it's on there. Our sound archive is up as well. Big problems for the defending champions, Westfall and Macquarie. Um, they are well back. Trinkler and Plum. Oh, sorry. Yes, Trinkler and Plum. What am I talking about? I'm reading the wrong <laughs> part of the thing. Yes, um, they are. They've only got half the points of the leaders. They've got pole position. Yep. Owen Trinkler got the uh, pole position at the weekend, which was, I think, only the second time he's had one because he doesn't normally <laughs> do the qualifying. But they need another. Are they going to have to do it in the second half of the season again? Not sure. How does it look ahead Ooh. of them? So in the lead of the championship after, and rightfully so, after two races, things are a bit closer here. It is Devin Jones and James Clay who are tied for the GS points lead with Corey Fergus and Jesse Lazare, so the Mia McLaren versus the Bimmer World BMW. They have a 10-point advantage over Jeff Westfall and Tyler McQuarrie, who yeah. won the race this weekend. But Owen Trinkler and Hugh Plum have 30 points versus the 60 that has already been accrued by the guys leading the championship. So it is going to be a long fight back. But you never count against Joe Vardy, and he is still the man on their pit box. So they'll figure it out. Still a lot of the Mercedes guys, all the Mercedes guys saying they don't have the torque, they don't have the top speed, they can't. If they're in the lead, they're fine. If they're on a long run, they're fine. But short runs, they can't get the tyres up to, to temp easily and they feel that they're disadvantaged in straight line speed. Uh, in the TCR category, congratulations to Lewis Pericarpi's team uh, and yeah. particularly to Tom O'Gorman, who we know is a star, and Shelby Blackstock, who was our guest analyst at the weekend, an- analyst at the weekend, uh, who took the TCR class, but only just. We'll not spoil it. We'll not spoil it. No. Oh no, 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 no. it doesn't matter. We've told you. They ran out of fuel on the, on the slowing down lap, and they didn't know how close they were because they hadn't got the fuel probe in quickly, uh, properly at the end of their second or their end of their last stop, their first stop, I think it was. Um, and so that only was stopped. yeah, they only did one stop, and it, yep. that that was far tighter than it needs to be. So off to Long Beach, and which classes do we have? 
Uh, just the pro classes. So it's just prototype and GTLM. Uh, should be a, a very good grid, actually. But it should be somewhere in the region of maybe 23, 24 cars. And that will be enough on the streets of Long Beach. Join, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, share Jeremy and myself for that. Uh, it's always a good weekend. Always a bit of a festival atmosphere. Looking forward to that immensely. Let's move on to World Superbikes now. Two-wheeled action. Yay. And a muted <laughs> yay from uh, Nick Damon. No, that was from me. Oh, that was from that John Hartle. That was John yay. Yeah, yeah. well, I yeah. saw, I've got to tell you, chaps, I saw nothing at all of this at the weekend. <laughs> that makes two of us. It didn't, it didn't miss an awful lot, to be honest, um, because it's now six from six from Alvaro. I was going to say, I, was, I thought you might have asked if... Uh, if I was going to guess, I would have said that. But it's also six from six from Jonathan Ray. In second place. Yes. And this weekend, it was three from three for Alex Lowe's in third. Really? So the same top three in each. Yeah, I mean, um, Alvaro Bautista is very, very good. He's significantly better than Chaz Davis, who is injured in fairness to Chaz. Um, and Alex Lowe's is having a, a, a good, a, had a good race in Burinam. But, yeah, Johnny Ray can't get within seven or eight seconds of uh, Alvaro and I uh, and that given the fact you'd kind of think they're both of a pretty similar level of riding you have to put down to um to the to the bike and the bike balance or the balance of performance of the, how of the did, machine how did Charles Davies get on I know he's still he got a couple of fours and he was I think he was punted out of one and a couple of fours I haven't got all the breakdown in front of me right but um yeah I mean he's it's 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 I, I realized that uh, w, WSB did not want um uh, Johnny Ray to win the championship again this year, and they said as much. There's Gregorio Lavilla, isn't it, who's something involved in the uh, in the organisation. So he said as much towards the back end of the season. This is really bad for them to have uh, Johnny Ray running away with the championship. Well, whilst I'm sure it's, it's it's playing well at the moment, it's going to get equally bad if Bautista has an unopposed run to the championship just because he's got a bike that's way quicker. We, we said this before. Well, <laughs> there there is still a lot of Bautista in that. We said this no, after I'm, Australia. I'm not having a go at him. I'm just saying that I don't think, and and I don't, you know, it's 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 it, the point about it is that it, you kind of felt with a V4 um, Ducati coming on steam that that you know, given the, that they were going to end up with an advantage, and the advantage was going to be dialed in by uh, Dorna to make sure the WSBK was not won or the was not won with any ease by Kawasaki, yeah. who this whole engine regulation was designed to peg back last year, but didn't do enough. So, I, and again, uh, what this, uh, please, no one, especially Declan Brennan, think I have anything against Alvaro Bautista. I don't. I think he's a very, very good rider and may well, may well have what, well, we probably will, but we would we'll win this championship anyway if the bikes were even, but they're not. He's got 26, it, he's got 26 points of an advantage already, and we've done two weekends. Now, I know there's three races per weekend. Well, one big race, and, but yeah, but no, the thing about it is, is, is that, you know, he has got, got, he's got to start falling off now. He's not let, not leapt away because Johnny's been. This is nothing to do again with Johnny Ray being British either. It's just kind of you think you've got a chance to have uh, two riders who can really battle it out. Even and, and at the, the moment pro- you're you're walking away from that because that bike has got such a big advantage. Problem for everybody else is Nick. The next best is Alex Laws on 69 points as against Alvaro Bautista on 124. Michael Van der Mark. There's still something like 700 points available though. Yeah, but but. The, the thing is that the same guys are almost always at the front and the points differentials team are, are going to make it difficult for those gaps to be to be taken to be taken out now there, there will be a rebalance of performance they don't call it that um, but 
that's not until after Aragon, and Aragon's another circuit where the Ducati, it's going to suit the Ducati and the particular performance characteristics of the Ducati. So if Alvaro Bautista doesn't win all three at um, at Aragon, I'll be terribly surprised. And they know what's coming. They know they're going to get their revs taken back. Um, and And that's before we even get into all the... Um, the ramifications of what they might be doing with the um, with the other bikes and, and cranking them up a bit. But they know they've got to make here early on. They've played this. I think they've played it brilliantly. Um, and I mean, it's it's ma- it's a man against boys at the moment. I I, I, I still think that Bautista's done a great job, and he's riding no, that no, bike he, better than anybody else's. He's done a perfect job because he's won all six races he's taken he's been given he's been given an opportunity and he snatched it and that's all you can do yeah and he's not fallen uh, off but he's got to be off. conscious of the fact that if Johnny Ray keeps finishing second there's only so much margin he can build And but it does look like a two horse race already oh it's definitely a two horse race I think it, I think it, it, because than it being a one horse race well no exactly yeah. but Leon Haslam I, I've, I've I, I was a it get was, a bad back get a bad back this weekend was that from where he fell off the weekend before? I think so, yeah. He, he was not 100% this weekend. Well, and he, so, so he's already down, you know, 50, 60 points. He's on 51 points. The Kawasaki is the only bike that looks like it could give the Ducati a run for its money, particularly in the shorter races. It's not as kind on its tyres, is it, Nick, as the no. Ducati? And, and particularly, now that is where Bautista has an advantage. He's very, very kind on his tyres. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Let's, let's not. This is not about Batista bashing session. This is just a let's have a a more even fight between the two of them. Mm. Well, possibly after Aragon, but what normally happens in these circumstances is they go too far the other way. Well, also because remember Ducati is, is is obviously right at the beginning of its uh, development cycle as well, so they should have some natural improvements coming along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did um, did Leon not get on the podium at all? In Thailand. No, no, all three podiums are the same. All three podiums are the same. Bautista, Bautista Rear Lowe's. Lowe's. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Obviously, that's never happened before because there have been three races at the meeting last, last time in, in Australia, but yeah. So, um, if you can't remember where the next round is, just it'll be somewhere in Spain, and in this case, that is yeah. correct. 5th to the 7th of April at the Motor Card Aragon round. Uh, and bikes. Sorry? Good track for bikes. I think it'd be a great track. I, I know a lot of teams test there. I'd love to see an endurance race there. I mm. really would. I, just to have an excuse to go there, to be honest, because <laughs> it's a part of Spain that uh, looks fantastic, and I'd, I'd like an excuse to go there. Uh, right, OK, that's that. Thanks for the moment, Nick. I did promise more uh, junior single-seater news earlier, didn't I? Uh, you did. Uh, because the first pre-season two-day test <laughs> of the new FIA Formula 3 Championship not Formula 3, uh, started today at Paul Ricard and will continue tomorrow, also at Paul Ricard. Right. Um, Who should we be looking out for? Well... If you're going to do this, you the, might as well give us a one to watch or a couple to watch. The the driver with number one on his car yep. is David Beckman right. uh, for ART. Now, he's got the number one because the car numbers were allocated by a random draw of uh, bits of paper from a hat. Really? Yes. Excellent. Uh, So, uh, Beckman uh, has been um, reasonable in lower formula. 
Um, not jumping out at me, though. His teammates, though, or one of his two teammates... Please tell me he's to call Turner. No. Overdrive? No. Oh, Futural and Lundgaard. All right. Uh, so Beckman, Futural, Lundgaard. Uh, but Max Futural is uh, certainly one to look out for. Reigning Formula Renault Euro Cup champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we should also look at uh, one Devlin De Francesco, who's mm-hmm. Canadian, but yep. has raced in Britain for a while. Uh, he is at Trident alongside someone called Pedro Piquet. Uh, any relation? Yes. Right. Uh, there's also a young New Zealand driver called Marcus Armstrong, who I'm told is very good. Okay. Uh, an American called Logan Sargent, who I would expect to catch the eye of Jeremy Shaw uh, this year. No, he's too. He's if he's in F3 already, he's too far up the ladder. Oh really? Okay. I think so. Probably. All right. So that's over the next couple of days. We'll keep an eye on that, Tim. Thank you. Oh, sorry, you caught me off guard there. <clears throat> it's Midweek Motorsport, and here's what's coming up. So, in the second half of tonight's programme, Shea Adam coming back. She'll be looking at the rest of the North American news. Uh, looking back to NASCAR and looking forward to IndyCar, who are in Austin this weekend. It's the VLN as well this weekend, and a bit of controversy there, and that's something that uh, Paul Truswell and Johnny Palmer will be having uh, a wee chat about and oh, we've got a quiz show to fit in somewhere but coming up next in lieu of the big interview it's Paul Truswell and me with basically post-race tech for the WEC from Sebring Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com so to kick off the second half then, no big interview this week. We didn't really get time to do a post-race tech after the World Endurance Championships Sebring 1,000 miles, which ended up being the Sebring 8 hours. Uh, but we'll let Paul Truswell, who joins me, talk a little bit about that. We had to let the uh, technical staff at the track go because of the late hour. IMSA were very good to keep them on for us to do that show. Good evening, Paul. Hello, John. Um, obviously, you were monitoring what was going on from the walking data centre. Um, it, it went a lot better than I thought in terms of logistics. Um, Sebring wouldn't have been my first choice to put on two major races because the logistics of doing that and the infrastructure of the area, as well as the circuit, actually, probably aren't up to it. Um, but somehow it, it managed to work. And um, First of all, let's talk about the format of, of the race. Eight hours or a thousand miles. It was pretty much always going to be the eight hours, wasn't it? It was. Um, I, I kind of did some sums and I worked out that I, you could get to just about 271 laps. Um, the scheduled distance was 268, so it didn't take very much to uh, stop that from happening. But I, I, I like the idea of doing something different. I've said many times to you and on, mm. uh, on the various programmes that... Um, the, the trouble with a six-hour race is that you just get into a routine of what to do um, and mixing it up with an eight-hour with the possibility that it might actually stop at a certain distance, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I, I, to, uh, to be honest, the only thing that I would say about it, I didn't have a problem necessarily with the eight hours. I think it should have started earlier in the day because keeping people there till beyond midnight when they all had to be back, including the marshals, at eight o'clock the next morning, um, I, yes. I thought was... 
it was four o'clock in the morning where I was when the race finished. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I, I take your point. Um, there was a time, wasn't there, where... And they scheduled the races to be separated by only a couple of hours, wasn't yes, there? Which was um, never going to never going to work, to be honest, for <laughs> for a number of reasons. Um, there but, would have been there would have been no audience at the end of it for sure. I mean, at least put it on the Friday night. I always said the place to put it was Friday night. Six hours into the darkness on Friday night, starting at, at four, going till ten or earlier on in the afternoon. But that would have still got you some darkness. The extra couple of hours. Not really here, here or there, but I think 10 o'clock's got to be the time to finish it in the future uh, to give people enough time to, to turn turn around. It, it, it provided, a, I thought, an extra dimension to, to Sebring and uh, the split paddock and the split pit lane um, was, was interesting as well. It did kind of work. No, actually, it did work. It worked and there was no glitches on the timing once we got used to, what, to watching that. I, I, I thought it worked. I, I suspect it'll happen again. I do. I, I I mean, that was my thought at the end of the race or at the end of the weekend after we'd finished the uh, the 12 hours as well, was what are they going to do next year? Because you, I, I, admittedly, I was remote and I would have loved to have actually been mm-hmm. able to uh, feel the atmosphere around the place. And so I was kind of sensing the atmosphere based on what I was hearing and so on. So um, I wasn't necessarily... Um, best place to judge but I, I did feel from this distance that it worked very well mm. um, however I also felt that inevitably they won't they won't do the same thing next year um, partly because people aren't like that they'll they'll make improvements um, and I think as I said before I think it's good to do something different and whether it's by juggling with the the format of a race weekend as Sebring did or by making the races longer um, I think that's a good thing and you know we uh, as you say having the race into the night um, I know you're a, a fan and we've spoken as well before of starting a race in the night and finishing it in the daylight mm-hmm. um, you know I think there are different ways of being able to do things and no, I think it was a successful weekend, and from the purely from the WEC point of view, the thing that was uh, that upset me. The thing that I was really annoyed about was the fact that it rained at the end, because that just made it all a bit to a bit of a, a damp squib. Literally, as well as yes. metaphorically. Uh, yeah, no, don't disagree with that. Uh, don't disagree with that at all. And I, I always think it's slightly. Uh, unsatisfying after so much good racing to finish behind the safety car. Obviously, the safety car pulls out the way, so it's not in shot. But effectively, you're under a virtual safety car because you 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 can't overtake. Half the race in the dark certainly worked for me. Um, as I say, there's a few detailed changes that I think might be made, but it, it kind of worked. Um, at, the, at the front of the field, um, it, what we expected to happen sort of happened. It wasn't a perfect run for one of the two Toyotas, but they still uh, managed to get the 1-2. Neil Charney basically saying, right, what have we got to do now as private ears? We can't get anywhere near these cars. Um, I'm not sure that's... Again, you know, to use the phrase I used earlier on about something else, um, it, that that's not a headline that are gonna, it's going to get a lot of clicks. I, I, <laughs> the, 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 the trouble is Toyota is just too good at what they do. And the way the rules are written, it isn't possible for anyone to do anything about um, uh, to, to do anything about picking up the pieces. Should should there be any pieces to pick up? Uh, do we think that's going to be Neil Johnny's last WEC race? Uh, 
Oh, I don't know. Um, with his, with you, his... you, you clearly do because you wouldn't have asked the question otherwise. Well, he, he's got his commitments in uh, Formula E, and uh, it, there was sort of a bit of a suggestion there. Um, he's a Porsche Formula E works driver, so he's got things to do with them when they come into the championship and testing and such like this year. Um, I, I, it's, it's probably it, it, better money over him for FA as well, to be honest. Well, I think uh, aside from from the money aspect of it, um, you know, you've got to face the fact that Formula E is, uh, like it or loathe it, it is drawing in the crowds. Um, it's Not the um, sort of crowds he would have been in front um, of him it's, at Sebring. It's, it's, it's easy to watch as far as um, the spectator who is used to the Formula One type mm. of racing is concerned. Um, I've been to two Formula E races and they didn't really float my boat. Um, but, you know, th- th- they do appeal to a, a certain cross-section uh, of the crowd. And so I think given the choice, we've seen a number of people trying to dovetail uh, programs in both. I mean, Sam Bird is another. Yeah. Um, and th- I think most of them would say that Formula E would be their priority over the World yeah. Endurance Championship. And I think that's a very sad thing. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And maybe the World Endurance Championship has to look at itself a bit. Well, I mean, and it is, is part, of, I mean, part of that could be the fact, that, uh, the point that Johnny was making, that private E is just can't compete. So there's two cars and, you know, four or six, dri- uh, four or six drivers, six drivers in Toyota who are going for the win. And everybody else is effectively in a different class, and certainly we saw that at the weekend. I and mean, what sort of uh, you you crunch the numbers? What sort of differences were we seeing in the average lap times? Was it was it crushing by Toyota? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean the um, the average lap times were three to four seconds different. Wow. Um, so as I say, even if the it's a second um, a mile. That's a second a mile. Three and three quarter mile circuit. That's extraordinary. I mean, I think partly it's because Sebring actually plays to the strengths of the hybrids. Yes. um, Because they have all this clever stuff with the the way that the brakes work and um, the the way that the... um, what do they call them? These interlinked suspension yeah. uh, systems. The Frick suspension, uh, yeah. Works very, very well on a circuit like Sebring, where half the time you've only got two wheels on the road anyway. Um, so I think Sebring does accentuate the differences between them. But there was, as I say, there was never a hope for uh, the non-hybrids mm. unless the uh, Toyotas had a major problem and broke down. Otherwise, they'd have been able to stop half an hour in the pits and come back. Yeah. Know. Yeah, and and uh, and we'll never know how much they had left in the tank, as it were, in terms of uh, performance. Your point about the suspension is well made because, of course, we've seen in the past when we've had DPIs and LMP2s running together in a combined IMSA class as they were last year, using the same chassis, of course, but the P, uh, the DPIs were allowed different suspension components rather than the the um, the spec suspension that the LMP2s had and that's where they got their advantage from as well, uh, amazingly enough Um, as far as P2 was concerned uh, first of all actually I should say the P1 privateers I I made a point of saying this in the race if if we didn't have Toyotas and and I'm going to say exactly what I said in the race 
I am not suggesting that Toyota shouldn't be there, and neither am I suggesting they should go away. But actually, the competition between the, the P1 privateers um, was pretty good and pretty even until reliability took a hold. But we've got to remember, Paul, these are cars still in the first year of, of the formula. And they're being run by very professional teams, but nevertheless private teams. Um, And they don't have the same resources that are available to the mites of Toyota. Um, I mean, I spoke to some people from Porsche before they gave up and literally it was anything they wanted they could have. There was no question of a budget coming in. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's uh, um, the, the... P1 privateers do do a very good job. Um, I think what we've cars seen are over... lovely, Paul. I mean, you know, when you see them up close, and I, I haven't seen um, those cars um, since Le Mans last year, and you know, and I, you forget just how beautifully turned out they are, and what nicely engineered bits of kit they are. And five, ten, fifteen years ago, if that had been the top class, then we would have been drooling over these cars because they're beautiful things. Yeah, and and well prepared, well put together. I'm not, as I say, I, I said they were put together by privateers, but they mm. are uh, properly presented, and uh, you know they're, they're they're properly engineered and everything like that. But they just can't keep up with the with the hybrids. I think in terms of the battle between them, it's basically just a again, it's a battle of two stables: the rebellions against the SMPs, mm. uh, without the uh, the Bicolis team, the CLM team being uh, at Sebring. Um, what we've tended to see over the course of the season is that the SMPs are a little quicker, but the rebellions always win um, because they are reliable. And for all uh, the fact that it's a new car this year, Bart Hayden's been doing it for long enough that he knows uh, what to do to get a car to the finish. Um, but I think what was uh, very impressive at Sebring was uh, the pace that uh, the rebellions were managing to keep up. Um, Sadly, as I say, we lost one of them uh, due to an accident. And yeah. um, I mean, but, you know, th- again, the, the way that they're being driven, I mean, Thomas Laurent, Gustavo Menezes oh. are, are both fabulous drivers, Great. Um, you know, and I think they're um, they're really proving their worth in the, uh, you know, in, in this championship. And, you know, I think the, um, the P1 privateers, yes, they could live without the Toyotas. We could have a perfectly reasonable championship without them. But the Toyotas bring more gravitas to it. Ah, and, you know, so, you know, you, you know, they can't, you know, you can't get rid of those. Um, I think what we do need is some people stepping up into the P1 hybrid, uh, sorry, the P1 non-hybrid, the P1 privateer class, uh, either from P2 or, dare I say it, from Formula 2, uh, Erswell yeah. Grand Prix 2, uh, or from a Formula E team that would like to do sports car racing but don't want to do sports car racing up the highest level of a manufacturer. I mean, there's some proper teams doing Formula E, and they could quite easily step into uh, an LMP2 key team. Uh, LMP1, entry. yeah, LMP1. Uh, sorry, LMP, LMP, LMP1. To, to be honest, I think the WEC and and certainly the ACO would be delighted if some current LMP2 entries decided to push up into LMP1 because it would solve some of their problems because LMP2 globally is just too successful and there's not enough room for them at Le Mans. That's a whole other story that we were covering a couple of weeks ago. The problem being, and, and we're sort of straying off track here, as you and I often do when we're having chats like this, but the problem being that with the uncertainty of what that LMP1 category is going to look like um, in a very short time 
indeed, you know, next year, virtually this time next year, after Le Mans next year, we start again, apparently, with the 2020 regulations. Will the current LMP1 non-hybrids still be eligible? Don't know. And, and, and for that reason, nobody can uh, nobody can invest anything in the uh, in the category. Correct. Um, and yeah, I mean, and we are straying off the subject. Yeah. If we're not careful, we're going to talk, start talking about some of the American teams that could get involved. Well, in... yes. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> I like LMP1, uh, the non-hybrid LMP1, LMP1 private A, call it what you will, LMP1 bis. Um, we um, we've got some good teams in there. We've got some very good drivers in there. The cars look splendid. I think it's beholding on the SEO and the WEC, and I'll say this right now, they should say right now that with everything else going on, they're going to extend that formula to at least having given them three or four years. So beyond whatever happens in, in the top class, they've got to extend that formula and give people a chance then to stick a toe in the water, maybe from a, a different championship. The BR chassis... Uh, there's three engines that it can run already. The team have told uh, me and others that there's other engines that they could easily uh, uh, adapt that chassis for. I, I, I keep, and again, I've said this before, I keep thinking that if Martin Berrien was still around today, God rest his soul, that there'd have been 10 chassis built for that LMP1 private air chassis and he'd been shelling them out like peas. The BR could be that, that Lola-type chassis that is relatively cost effective that can get people into the formula i, I just I, that's all it needs to get it kicked off well and and we've got this far without talking about Ginetta. Uh, mm. i mean that car should be in this championship and but for some i don't know all sorts of dodgy dealing and business things that happen in business um it we we should have Ginettas in there and they would do the same thing and you know i i just Yes, it is. It is a little frustrating that yeah. it's not there. But there's there's nothing that says, John, it, in my view, there's nothing that says in any regulation anywhere that there should be a single class of car that can win at Le Mans. No. We've had it before. Uh, you know, you think but think back to the days where we were um, in in the mid 90s when a prototype and a GT car were were fighting together for the overall lead of the race. Mm-hmm. And I don't see anything wrong with having a, a structure of classes at Le Mans where you can have two types of car derivative of the hypercar whatever it is uh, and a p1 non-hybrid and theoretically a p1 hybrid i don't know because it depends what toyota is going to do in 2020 but all of those could be equivalenced so that they are all in with a shout for overall victory at the moment it can't happen no no i I suspect though that the days of that happening uh, if you think back to 1998 when porsche won with the the 911 GT1, that car wasn't meant to win that year. That was meant to be the world sports cars, but they they were unreliable. And Porsche had entries in both of those categories. What, what I would suggest is that if you had people who were entering a GT style, call it GTP, call it whatever you're going to call it, um, in that category and putting a huge amount of activation and marketing behind it, um, a Ford, a Toyota, a Honda, whatever it is, um, they would not want to be beaten by what's this Janetta thing? So how have we just been beaten by a Janetta? But, but um, I mean, you, you, you mentioned '98 when it was Porsche versus Porsche. You go mm-hmm. to uh, 1995 when it was McLaren versus mm-hmm. Courage. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 
how would that have looked if the might of McLaren had been beaten by Courage? Well, they should have been, but, mm. um, you know, it's the different same Different deers, though. Different deers. Very different deers, because the money now comes from marketeers, not engineers. And I just don't think that's acceptable. I mean, if you go and look at the IMSA model, the DPI model's doing really well, but the manufacturers have demanded that the P2s are thrown back in their own class and they, they allow the DPIs to have the performance potential that they want because Cadillac and Honda and, you know, the other manufacturers, Mazda, don't want to be beaten by something, a something Gibson because it but, just doesn't look good on their press releases. But... By that very token, if you look at the GT cars, um, you would think that they are all the same. You could go out and buy a road-going Ferrari uh, 488 and expect it to um, run a Porsche 911 close. Well, it doesn't. No. You know, so what we're doing is artificial. So by that same token, we could do that for the overall. Um, yeah, let's get back to the Sebring 1,000 miles, yes, yes, before we, we disappear completely down the rabbit hole. Um, so the two Toyotas first and second, SMP Racing uh, in third position. It, it was a you know last man standing as far as the... the um, uh, as far as the P1s were concerned, the non-hybrids. Uh, P2, Jackie Chan, DC Racing, well done to David Enemy Hansen, Jordan King and Will Stevens. They drove a good race. I thought DHS did a, a, a cracking job. The interest came in the uh, GT classes, and in particular the, uh, the Works GT classes. It, it was the first part of what was going to be a double um, by Porsche at the weekend, although it didn't look like that uh, in either of the races at various times. Uh, Ricard Leitz and Jimmy Bruni still have trouble thinking of him as a as a Porsche <laughs> driver. Now, a, a few people did uh, respond when I asked for some questions, including uh, Jörg, right turn lover, about what was going on in the, the end of the race, particularly in the GTE Pro battle. So, pit stops, yes, pace, presumably as well. How did that play out, Paul? Uh, well, I, if, if you remember, I did say that uh, the BMW was at a disadvantage Correct. because although it was leading, um, it did have to make another stop for fuel. Um, and so it was going to need to have a roll of the dice. And yes, there was... And that meant that... Um, they all had to come into the pits anyway to change the tyres. Now, the pit stop for the Porsche was 10 seconds quicker than the BMW. So uh, that was part of the reason that they were able to close up. But the other thing that's interesting to look at are the laps immediately when the rain started, immediately before they came into the pits, because um, the BMW, in effect, lost around about 10 seconds in those three laps. And... On top of that, you had the 10-second quicker pit stop, uh, and then there was a further five seconds lost by Nicky Katzberg in the BMW on the in and the out laps. So Bruni got out of the pits ahead of the BMW, um, and of course we then had a lap before we then went to safety car. Um, so it was um, it was predictable that Porsche were going to win. I think. BMW uh, managed to luck into second place because otherwise it would have been involved in a bit of a battle with Andy Prio's Ford that was uh, in third place. But uh, Prio had a slightly longer pit stop and actually came out of the pits 20 seconds after the BMW did. 
Uh, and by that time, the safety car had gone through. So when the race actually finished, uh, the official race results show Andy Prio in the uh, Ford. And then who was next up? It was the Ferrari, wasn't it? The yeah. uh, number 51 Ferrari. Um, they were both classified a lap down. But that was only because the wave by hadn't happened. Yeah. Um, because theoretically, there should have been a wave by to get... Um, the cars back onto the lead lap with the safety car, but that didn't happen. So although the race results only showed two cars in GTE Pro being on the lead lap, uh, there really were four. Yeah, I, I understand that. Uh, final point here um, from uh, GeForce says, um, the temporary paddock at Sebring opposed to the uh, elaborate permanent garages typical of grade one tracks that WEC normally runs does that finally open more future possibilities for north american tracks for example uh, road america or watkins glen somebody asked me this question and said um you know has the lure of a big race and being in front of 150,000 people finally won out over having to run on grade one tracks i i think it's far more the necessity of of the wec needing another um, another continent on their calendar at the time that this deal deal was done. But there are mouthwatering uh, opportunities for WEC if they are prepared to go to places that have facilities which, let's be honest, are as basic as where they were at Sebring. Uh, indeed, yeah. I mean, I, I I was lucky enough in the early 1990s to um, to be in America and to see what was then top class uh, sports cars. What was you know the uh, the 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 GTPs, the uh, the Jaguars and Nissans, uh, the new I say the new Toyota, the the uh, the Eagle Toyotas, um, and they were at and I saw them at circuits like uh, Road Atlanta, at Lime Rock, at Watkins Glen, and Yes, the, the facilities are basic, um, but that was no different from the facilities at Le Mans a few years prior to that. Um, you know, Le Mans was working out of a, a paddock and you had to go around and uh, if you wanted to work on the car, you either had to do it in the pit lane or push it away. And in fact, if you pushed it away, you were disqualified. So you had to work on it in the pit lane. Um but you said earlier on, John, times have changed. What is acceptable now is not the same no. as what was acceptable 10, 15, even 20 years ago. Yes. Paul, thanks for the moment. Excellent stuff. Paul Trustwell joining us with a, a sort of belated version of WEC PRT. And thanks to everybody who put in points there. I sort of uh, amalgamated a, f- a few together to get Paul uh, through some of that uh, bits and pieces. And... Uh, our next WEC race uh, will be Spa, of course, and then we're all on the trip to Le Mans. Midweek Motorsport, Series 14, Episode 11. Tim Gray is up in London. What have you got next for us? What excitement have you got next for us, Tim? It's game show time. Oh. So where are we going? I don't know. Play some music. It's Norwich. And now, from Norwich... It's the quiz of the week. It's the quiz of the week. Today's top prizes include this selection of domestic items. There's a sandwich toaster there, a 
coffee machine, a drinks dispenser, a tea maker, then a range of cookware in tangerine with saucepans, casseroles, plus that microwave oven and many other items. But now let's meet the man who asks the questions and pays out the money. Nicholas Parsons. Oh, love that big price. Love that big price. Uh, so this is Deal of the Century, then. Deal of the Century, and actually, this is a Deal of the Century that's actually relevant to Dale. Is <laughs> no really. So we are back to Deal of the Century's roots, then. Deal of the Century's the early years. Yes. Excellent. Uh, and we have uh, two additional contestants to join you, John. Oh, I'm, I, I don't want to be in this. I don't want to be in this. I'm hopeless at this. That's what makes it fun. Okay. Uh, so I'd like to welcome back Nick Damon. Uh, good evening, Tim. And I would like the uh, dining room furniture, which is the middle prize for only £55, please. Yeah. And uh, Shay Adam. Hello. Don't worry, John. I'm worse at this game than you are. No, nobody's worse than me. Absolutely nobody is worse than me at this game. All right. So what's the premise? I'll explain to everybody what the premise is. Here. It's been a while since we've had that, although this was one of our most favourite um, game shows from the uh, from the listener. We basically look at uh, auctions which have a motorsport connection. Yeah. And I read out the uh, details of the auction lot, and you have to guess how much it's sold for, and the person who gets the closest uh, is the winner. Right, okay. All right, let's go. Uh, So I'm going to take you back to Phoenix, Arizona. Right. uh, On Saturday. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, There was a big auction which uh, included some cars... Uh, owned oh. and driven right, okay. by Dale Earnhardt. Right. Ooh. And by Dale Earnhardt Jr. Oh. Mm. Right. A little bit more Nick, please. No, it's all right. I've got them both fan- faded down at the moment. The first uh, item I have for you yep. is a 1994 Chevrolet Lumina. Now, this is chassis number 9309. Is this it's, a race car or a street it's car? It's a race car. It was driven by Dale Earnhardt. It right. was the one that he used when he won his seventh Winston Cup title. Right. This particular car finished second at the That's 1994 Hooters 500. <laughs> right. Uh, it raced in 15 uh, NASCAR races across three seasons. Two wins, two seconds and two thirds. Is it, is it a running car or is it a rolling chassis? This, uh, I have no idea, but I can tell you that uh, it is... Oh, it's in race-ready condition. There we go. This is black. It's got the number three GM Goodwrench uh, livery on it. It has a uh, 750-horsepower pushrod OHV V8 engine with four-barrel carburetor, four-speed manual transmission, independent front suspension, right. uh, a live rear axle with coil springs, and four-wheel disc brakes. A uh, hundred and ten inch wheelbase. Right. Who's so going first John, on this? You can go first on this. Um, three hundred thousand dollars. Shay. Two hundred and twenty thousand dollars. And Nick. Three hundred and one thousand dollars. <laughs> uh, Shay is the winner. It went for oh, one hundred and ninety thousand dollars. Uh, next, we're going to move on to uh, a two thousand and four Chevrolet Monte Carlo. This one was raced by Dale Earnhardt Jr. It's Ooh. the car in which he won the Golden Corral 500 on the 14th of March 2004 at Atlanta. It's chassis number DEI8022. It has been signed by Dale Earnhardt Jr. Right. It's a 5.8-litre V8 engine, a four-speed manual transmission, uh, and the original seat and headrest. It's in the red and white livery 
of uh, the uh, beer company. Right. Who's going first this time? Uh, Shane, I'll go, go first, first this time. I'll go first. Right. Uh, $465,000. Ooh. Nick? $325,000. And John? Uh, $324,000, because I don't think it went for anywhere near that. It didn't go <laughs> anywhere near that. $100,000, something um, like that? The estimate for this uh, was, uh, I believe, between seventy dollars and $90,000. Right. And it only Whoa. sold for 51700 No. So that's a point for John. Back in the game. <laughs> Next, uh, we have a 2008 Chevrolet Corvette... Indy 500 pace car. Oh, nice. This has seven miles on the clock. <laughs> they only oh. two laps then. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, it is in uh, two-tone black and... Ti- uh, sorry, it's in uh, black and silver with two-tone black and titanium heated leather seats. Uh, Indy 500 headrest embroidery, six-speed manual transmission. Oh, and what's the connection to the Earnhardts with that? Nothing. Five-spoke okay. chrome wheels, <laughs> right. and it has been autographed by the driver of the 2018 Indy 500 pace car. Who was that? Emerson Fittipaldi. Okay. Uh, I and will Nick go will for $66,666. <laughs> okay. And John? Oh, be more. It's got to be more than that. Um, so what did you say? 66000 He did. 666 I think that's 90 grand all dear. And Shay? 96 grand. Ooh. That's a point for Nick Damon. Really? Sold for just $33,000. No! I'd have bought it for that. That's new, effectively. It is effectively new, yes. Was that, oh, would that have been a convertible as well, Tim? It was a convertible, yes. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like ridiculously good value. Obviously, it's something we're missing here, guys. I wish yeah. that. There were a lot of cars at this auction, and this was this the Meekum auction. Like, it it is this was the Meekum auction. Yeah, that's twenty-five four, grand. Four days, and virtually nothing reached its estimate. Oh, dear. oh wow! Well, they do say the classic car market is having a bit of a hiccup at the moment. It, it certainly did in Arizona. The Porsche <laughs> index is going back up again. That's uh, all. 1993 Chevrolet Monte Carlo. Right. Driven by, mm-hmm. by Dale Earnhardt Sr. This one was originally built as a Chevrolet Lumina in March 1993, but then uh, re to become a Monte Carlo. Uh, it was used in the 1993 Michigan 500, where it started 7th and finished 9th. Right. Uh, it started 22nd in... Uh, Rockingham uh, that year and finished second and then at Rockingham the following year uh, started 19th and finished 7th uh, back round to me again isn't it it originally had the black paint scheme uh, but is currently in the Wheaties livery right uh, which is orange, orange. Uh, 5.8 litre V8 engine and 4 speed manual transmission John goes first <sighs> Well, given what we've seen, uh, $70,000. Shay? Twenty-two five. dollars <laughs> oh, And Nick? Uh, thirty-three six. Nick's the winner. No way. Oh, no way. 40700 Oh, man. We, we should have gone to this auction. Yeah. 
Unbelievable. Next, uh, I have uh, a 2012 Porsche 911 GT3 Cup. Oh, yes, please. Brumos Special Edition. One of five produced. So not a racing car, then? It's not a race car. No, it's a road-going car. Uh, It's a road-going version of the uh, GT3 Cup spec. Mm -hmm. So one of only five produced. It has a naturally aspirated 4-litre flat-six engine. Sequential multi-port. Port fuel injection. It has uh, a six-speed manual transmission, limited slip differential, McPherson strut type axle, which is obviously very rare in America. Uh, <laughs> carbon fibre doors, an adjustable rear wing, uh, wide body shell front splitter, an electronic fire extinguishing system, and it has been test driven by one Hurley Hayward. We've heard of him. Mm. Who goes first for this one? Uh, Shay goes first. I will warn you that this did not sell because it did not reach its reserve price. So mm. I am after the reserve price on this. The reserve price. Okay. Um, reserve price, let's say 270 Nick? 400 John? GT3 Cup cars are about $130,000. Now... Uh, 2012 this is limited edition. Only five. Yeah, one of five. Yeah, but it's still it's a, just a cup car with some stickers on, isn't it? Hurley um, Hayward's driven it. Hurley Hayward's driven loads of Porsches. Um, <laughs> I think a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. A point for Shay. How much was the reserve? Three hundred thousand. No, the wonder it didn't oh. sell. That's like a Porsche needs to just come down. Um. Well, no, that's just silly. You can buy a new Porsche, Nick. You can buy a new Porsche Cup car for 100, under one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the states. And the only thing that's different about this is it's twenty twelve and it's got some Brumos stickers on it. So it, I mean, it is a race car. You could go and race it in a Porsche Club event. Uh, finally, right. Uh, we are going to the most powerful and luxurious car <laughs> Porsche had ever built. At that stage. At that stage. Right. And that stage was in 1976. Right. What do we think mm-hmm. we're talking about? Uh, is that is that an early 928? No. Uh, th- 356. I'll put you out of your measure. No, no, no. It's no. a 1976 Porsche 930 Turbo Carrera. Ah, right. So that is a Oh, uh, okay. This has four-speed transmission. Right, a turbocharged three-litre six-cylinder engine. It's got 46,000 miles on the <laughs> clock. Right, uh, a Porsche certificate of authenticity, as if you can't tell that it's a Porsche just by <laughs> looking at it. No, it's t- to authenticate the fact that it's a real Porsche. It I mean, a, a real 930 Turbo. 930 Turbo, yeah. It has a sunroof. Steve uh, McQueen had one. Electric windows, mm. um, a whale tail spoiler, oh. halogen headlights, and Kumo tyres. Oh, well, the Kumo tyres are sold to me on their own. Come on. <laughs> And who's this? Is this Nick? Me first, isn't it? Nick first. Me first. I will say, because I have no idea, I'll say $300,000 because I have no idea. And then it's John. <sighs> $275,000. Is this sort of car that uh, Eve would like? No. No? Okay. <laughs> she would like the 356C. Shay? 
Well, in honor of this being an Earnhardt-related auction, I'm going to guess $88,333. Very good. And that's a point for Shay. $110,000. Holy, Shay, what we... a deal. Which means our winner tonight is Shay. Doesn't Yay! surprise me. The Steve McQueen <laughs> car... The Steve McQueen car went for nearly $2 million back in wow. 2015 at Monterey. But everything's more expensive at Monterey. California. Well, that's just... Uh, it's... The people get a bit starry-eyed, don't they, when they go to those big big shows around the, the big car shows like the Amelia Island one. Well, and... they, obviously get the, they obviously get the reverse of starry-eyed at this particular one because they're kind of letting things go for four pence halfpenny. I think there's a, an element of being sport for choice on uh, some of these. But it's not at one of the big car shows. This was this was one of Meekham's auctions um, uh, that was that come around once in a while. They're still they're still inflated prices, I think, when you watch them on the telly, even. But I think I mean, at, well, thirty-three grand for the Corvette hasn't inflated. No, 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 not yeah, this, not on this one. Not not on this one. That that I think that was a, with seven miles on it. Yeah, but you don't. I mean, yeah. spend a lot of money to to. to recommission that to get it going all right so it, it, it's a win for share on the uh, deal did nick and i draw or uh, was no was nick better than me yes excellent i keep up my uh, <laughs> wonderful uh, my, my wonderful <laughs> <laughs> results base on that i am in fact the robert q pizza of deal of the century uh, do we have Aww. time to quickly squeeze in some ever since i was a young boy news uh, very quickly, uh, Matt Housen is going to race in the Japanese uh, TCR Championship with KCMG. Right. Oh, cool. He said, I've loved <laughs> touring car racing ever since. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he really didn't say it, did he? Uh, uh, ever yeah, since I watched him as a young boy. the 1990s. But when he was a young boy. He was a he was very young, young boy. boy in the 1990s. Right, okay. Yeah. A child of the 90s. Right, well done, Cher. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport, uh, episode 14, series 11. We're just a couple of days away from the start of a new season of the Veranstalter Gemeinschaft Langstrecken for Karl Nürburgring. Uh, Paul Trustwell is still with us, and Johnny Palmer has joined us, the uh, travelling Johnny Palmer. Yes, I'm uh, out and about in the beautiful uh, Wensbury, West Midlands. Uh, good evening, Paul. Good evening, Kim. Hello, Johnny. Uh, now, we've been covering uh, VLN on uh, RS3 mainly for the last uh, two seasons. We're about to go into our third year of it. Uh, any changes, Paul? Um, yes and no. Um, I suppose it depends who you ask. Uh, I think in terms of the overall entry, not a lot. It's the usual suspects up at uh, the front end of the field as far as SP9 is concerned, the, the GT3 class. But I think what's got a lot of people talking uh, is a change to the balance of performance, the, the BOP, because effectively is to uh, restrict the uh, out the power output by five percent, which is round about 25 brake horsepower uh, for the SP9 and SPX class cars. Um, now this was done in order to try and make things safer. 
but many many of the drivers are saying it's actually going to make it more dangerous because it's taking away the advantage of the sp9 cars um, by slowing them down on the straights that means they're going to have to do their overtaking in the corners uh, or in the braking areas uh, and a couple of drivers have been saying the only way to get past particularly the quicker slower cars because remember the vln is this vast uh, panoply of different types of cars but the particularly the sp10s the sp8s the sp7 cars are not that different in terms of top speed to the sp9s and the only way for the sp9s to overtake them is going to be by making a kind of a last minute lunge under braking and a lot of drivers have been expressing severe misgivings about that and uh, they've taken to the various options that are open to them on social media to do this um Unfortunately, so far, we don't know. Um, the, there was a test weekend a couple of weekends ago, um, but it, it wasn't a timed session, so there weren't any times issued from it. Uh, it was literally an open, it was a bit like a track day, really. Um, but nobody really knew what was going on, so uh, there wasn't that spirit of competition. So we don't know quite what uh, this... Um, restriction is going to uh, is going to do to the races um, but for sure there's nobody that I've been speaking to has said it's actually going to help uh, Johnny uh, again it's it's a little bit of a, an unknown I suppose um, and I, I was going to sort of steer clear of balance of performance where possible because I'm getting quite excited about new cars because uh, the brand new Porsche which has been tested before in VLN I know that Falcon Motorsport have got their hands on one of the brand new uh, GT3Rs. So they're going to run still with a BMW, but also with one of the brand new Porsches. There is also changes for, for instance, the Get Speed Performance crew, who I've always known uh, to run a Porsche in recent years. They've moved to a Mercedes AMG. Uh, there are new teams as well, like, for instance, the team Iron Force by Ring Police are bringing a Porsche 911 GT3R and, I mean, on paper, 25 sp9 pro and pro-am cars or predominantly pro there are four pro-ams in the entry uh, looks looks mouth-watering add to that uh, a possible swan song for the current spec uh, scuderia cameron glickenhouse car uh, there's even i think a talk of a of a gt3 and gt4 spec version of a, an SD, scg 003 for the 24 hours of nurburgring in june and then you've also got a change in Cup 5, which is one of my real favourite classes, uh, 16 identical BMWs, but they've moved up, as far as I can tell from the entry list, from the M235i version of the BMW to the 240i. So Cup 5 uh, going to be just as intense as ever, but with a slightly a different BMW. So it's going to be interesting to see how everybody adapts to that new bit of kit. So some uh, teams much. leaving, sorry, Paul, some teams leaving, some others joining basically yeah that that that's right as uh, johnny was just saying one one car that i'm looking forward to seeing is is not necessarily a new car but it's the return of an old one because uh, there's a zack speed viper entered uh, in the sp9 class so uh, that'll be interesting to see just um rounding out what johnny was saying there um i've done some adding up six porsches variety six bmw m6s uh, five mercedes three of which as johnny said entered by the get speed team so they've not just put their toe in the water they've jumped in head first with this uh, uh, move to mercedes as the get speed team uh, so there's five of them uh, we've got four audi r8s uh 
two Nissans, uh, the Lamborghini, the Conrad Lamborghini, and uh, that Viper uh, that makes up the uh, the SP9 class. One car we were talking as well about new teams, uh, KCMG making their first uh, foray into the VLN with uh, their Nissan. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they get on on the Nordschleife, having uh, run very well. You saw KCMG at Bathurst, didn't you, Johnny? Uh, yes, we did. And, and I have a feeling they had a couple of Nissans, the same Nissans, out at Dubai as well. Um, and uh, But for a, a kind of glaring schoolboy error from, I forget who it was now, towards the end, the, the pro Nissan at Bathurst was in the top seven and could really have come home with a good result, but was scuppered by that rule that you cannot weave behind the safety car as soon as the safety car lights go out. And um, I want to say it was imperatory, but I might be uh, sort of putting a noose around his neck unnecessarily. He was part of no, the team anyway. Yeah, he was swerving. Nobody else was pinged for a penalty. He also, the same driver made a mistake uh, at the top of the, the first long, long straight into the right-hander approaching the cutting. And that was kind of race done. But the Nissan was certainly in the mix. Um, I have a feeling they didn't have quite as good Dubai, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the how the lone KCMG car gets on together with it's a condo entry, isn't it, from Japan, uh, which makes up the other uh, GTR. But great to have those in the in the main class. And uh, one rule change I've spotted is that uh, you now aren't guaranteed a position uh, or a garage unless you commit to the whole uh, series of nine races. That's right. The, uh, the 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 allocation of um, garages has always been a bit of I'd say a bit of a lottery. It's not really a lottery. It's uh, it's show up and seal who accept you into the into their garage, um, particularly for the smaller teams. And of course, with 171 cars on the provisional entry list, um, you've got to share garages. Uh, and what's more, you've got to be fairly pally with them. And um, yes, I think some of the teams have uh, taken umbrage at, uh, at that regulation. Uh, another regulation change is. Um, different points allocations there's going to be points allocated uh, for the top three qualifiers uh, after the qualifying session which is on the saturday morning all the vln races remember run on saturdays qualifying session on saturday morning race starts at 12 o'clock um but there's three uh, there's points for the first three uh, qualifiers and then the points for the actual race now extend all the way down to 20th place so your little spreadsheet that you do uh, for every race johnny uh, is always fairly complicated because of the whole way that bln point scoring is calculated but it now goes down to the top 20 in each class right thanks for that some, uh, some <laughs> reprogramming necessary potentially then as well um, and also uh, has the system to get into the June 24 hour race changed? Because I have a feeling there was some stuff written earlier on in the year about 17 places up for grabs. But some of those places going to be based on on theoretical lap times rather than a uh, an actual hard and fast result. Oh, that's a new one. I haven't heard that one. Um, OK, there is the. There is a qualifying race for the 24 hours, of course. So we talk about the nine VLN races that uh, go throughout the season. But there's a big gap in the VLN calendar in order to accommodate the VLN qualifying race, which is the third weekend in May, May the 19th, I think, um, ahead of the uh, 24 hours, uh, which is, strictly speaking, different events. The the qualifying race and the 24-hour race run by the ADAC, uh, whereas the other nine races for the VLN run by various, uh, as Tim so adequately described, the the clubs that make up the VLN. Uh, Basically, it's a group of the... um, 
the various clubs of the neighbourhood that uh, organise these races. Um, but they put together the uh, the nine races, but they're not strictly part of the 24 hours. But I didn't realise, other than getting your licence, you have to get your ring licence through VLN, uh, that there was any qualification to be done uh, through VLN. But I, I, I don't know. Normally during the, the Nürburgring 24-hour weekend, you have, I think it's a top 30 shootout, isn't it, based on single lap times, but everyone gets oh, yes. sort of two laps go at it. And in order to get into that last-minute top 30 shootout, I have read, but I still need to uh, kind of clarify it in my own mind, that the qualification process to get into that shootout has changed for 2019. But it's it's typically with the VLN and with things related to it, it's not exactly simple to understand at first reading. Well, let's no, uh, but hope it gets but... uh, more simple on Saturday. Uh, we're on air at 10.15. Uh, but for now, Paul Truswell and Johnny Palmer, thank you very much. Shadam is back with us. And Hello. We're going to talk NASCAR this time. Yes, the, uh, here's a man. We, we have to talk here, shit, about a man who absolutely polarizes opinion. In, there's, <laughs> there's nobody who just before think... we do that. Oh, go on then. Can we? Because last week we talked about what a mess IndyCar qualifying was. Right. So we need to <laughs> yes. talk about what a mess NASCAR qualifying was. <laughs> Yeah, let's do that. Um, how about we decide to go qualifying? We do a three-session qualifying what? order. Um, yeah, you've got the first session where it's 24 cars advance, I think. Then mm-hmm. the second one where it's 12 cars. And then you set your pulse setter in the third and final session. Uh, but and how many of those 12 distinct... cars uh, actually made it out onto the track during that third session? Zero. Zero got a flying lap because they all play chicken. They sit on the pit lane and wait for somebody to go out to be the leader, and then they draft that leader. But nobody wanted to go first. So oh, it's they not all just single waited. car. It's not single car no. qualifying. No way. Nope. It's, it's go out whenever you want. You've got a period of time. Uh, usually it's about a 10-minute window. I think 15 for some of the earlier ones. 20. You can go out, set your lap time, come back to the pit lane, let the car cool off, let the tires cool off, go out again. But you can work with your teammates to help. The problem is that somebody might jump onto the back of your draft and then actually get a better lap time than you. So how did they decide the poll then? Uh, they gave it to Austin Dillon. What, just because he was a nice lad? Yeah, First because he was feeling a little bit sick. <laughs> First alphabetically. What number is his car? Three. Three. So lo- lowest number. No, no, uh, because Kurt Busch runs number one. Oh, yes. And um, Brad Keselowski runs number two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did how did how did he get it? Big championship points? No. He had set the fastest time in the second session. I want right. to say. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so they, they went. They went back. Yes. They went back to the previous session where everybody set a lap and they took the. Well, that was a sensible way to do it. I mean, you know, but really. Yeah, but it's so ridiculous that they did. They've been doing this for three races in a row now, where everybody is just waiting. Right, I hadn't picked. I hadn't picked that up because I don't get to see qualifying. Um, so all right, so that was a bit of a farce then for for that. And, and I mean, it's not good for the sport. It's not good for the entertainment value. Uh, the really, were booing. Well, I bet they were, and not just yeah. booing one particular driver. I mean, you see sometimes crowd booing Carl Busch or crowd booing mm. Dale Earnhardt Jr. Depending on whereabouts in the country you are, they were booing everything. Yeah. Well, yeah. and uh, I mean, and that. Um, that has been another bone of contention, isn't it? Tony Stewart's year has been 
quite vociferous about why he thinks ratings <laughs> have dropped. And you know what? I don't disagree with him. He recently said in an interview that he thinks it's hard to cheer for a kid who gets handed a cup ride straight out of high school yeah. when you haven't been following them because they haven't had to earn their ride like the old heroes did. Mm-hmm. You got to watch people come up through the ranks. You got to watch to them develop. Them. Yeah, and, and you exactly you, you developed an affinity with you know a particular driver because you'd seen some of his his performances in the lower formula, which is effectively what those other series are. Yeah, so how is the everyday average American viewer, which let's face it, that's who Tony Stewart is speaking to because that's the majority of the NASCAR audience. How are they supposed to cheer for somebody who they view as being super privileged and getting handed the opportunity of a lifetime on a silver platter? Well, I mean, let's let's talk about the winner at the weekend. As I said, Kyle Busch polarizes opinion. Um, yeah, he's by no means uh, lift music for anybody. It's it's a love hate relationship. But what you can't deny, whichever side surely of that line you're on, even if you're not a Kyle Busch fan, and you know, 200 wins in <laughs> NASCAR. Uh, that's 50, so a quarter of them in the top series. Um, in fact, 53 in trucks as well, and mm-hmm. 94. All right, by far the majority of them in the second tier in the Xfinity series. But put that aside, that puts them up there with the greats. Yes, and just to put this into a little bit of perspective, in terms of the number of all-time wins on the list, Kyle Busch is second overall, no matter how you look at it, in the Cup series. He is second to the king and will probably forever be second to the king unless some magic happens and he wins every race ever for the next 10 years. But um, he has more competition That's than Richard, we Richard about Petty Richard did. Petty. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, he has a lot more competition than Richard Petty did in the day. Petty was often racing against 22 other guys with the best machinery underneath him and, let's admit it, probably the best driver that NASCAR had. So for Kyle Busch to be going out against... 40 cars on a weekend probably 35 of them stand a good chance of winning mm. it's more impressive uh, and kyle bush has support series to race in yeah. the king never did they no. didn't exist no indeed uh, and the, uh, he, he's tied with the king on overall wins uh, not going to get there in cup as you said but i mean that's still marvelous stuff uh cole custer won the xfinity race which could yeah. have actually been a double for for kyle bush well, and it, it's an interesting thought because Kyle's win number 200 could have come on Saturday night, yeah. which would have just been a little bit uh, overwhelming going into the cup race. But no, Cole Custer managed to hold him off on a restart, did an excellent job, and he took home the win, Kyle Busch coming in second. No Xfinity race uh, next weekend, trucks and cup only as they head to the paperclip. Yeah, off to Martinsville, so this will be another fun race, another short track, and uh, getting back to the short tracks from these long tracks. So hopefully qualifying goes a bit better. <laughs> yes, they've got to do something about that. I hadn't realised it had been so dire. Uh, let's move on to IndyCar, who are at quarter Circuit of the Americas, this weekend. So we were looking back there. Now let's look forward. Uh, this, this is a race which they're calling the IndyCar Classic. Is that not rather paradoxical, given they have never, never raced been there. there before? Classic circuit, I suppose. They could say it's a classic open-wheel circuit. Four, four drivers here with uh, racing laps? 
Uh, yes, there's Alexander Rossi, Max Chilton, and um, Ericsson all have laps in Formula One cars right. around Circuit Americas. But don't count out Patricio Award, who's making his return to IndyCar this year. Remember, he was supposed to be on a full-time ride. And with Harding Steinbrenner, that fell apart. Well, he has announced that he's going to be back. He's a part of the same team as Chilton, so that's going to be interesting to see how the two of them work together. But Pato won the prototype challenge class in 2017 of the IMSA race and set the fastest lap. He knows his way around Coda. He's going to be super competitive. I just wonder, you know, we talked about um, Seb Bortier and Scott Dixon in the uh, the IMSA part uh, of your chat with us this evening, Cher. Right, they were great at Sebring, but they're going to be sore. Uh, you know, uh, two or three days is when all of your bumps and bruises come out. By the time they're getting into first practice, they're going to start feeling <laughs> feeling those bruises, I reckon. Yeah, and having just been to Circuit Americas, what, two weeks ago, um, the backstretch, it, it's still pretty bumpy. Yeah. You know that road that runs alongside the uh, outside of the circuit? that keeps getting bumpier and bumpier. Well, yeah. it, it was a little bit reminiscent of Sebring, actually, when I was there. So, yeah, they're going to be feeling the bumps and bruises, as will Simon Pagino, Alexander Rossi, and Hurton Kolda, as you called him, uh, Colton Herta. So those five drivers coming fresh off of Sebring. But also, they're all very riled up after getting to go racing at Sebring. They True. haven't had a week off, so they're going to have the bit between their teeth. That's a fair point. Uh, we'll finish the IndyCar segment with some sad news here. Yeah, very sad news coming through late last week when Glenn O'Connor, who is the Catholic chaplain for the IndyCar ministry, died after a brief illness. He was in the IndyCar paddock for more than 40 years, and he was known at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway as the priest in the pits. Um, we are all very sad to see that Glenn past and we wish his family the best yeah absolutely share thanks for being with us this week thanks guys and hey i finally want something and that's all we've got time for is it yes wow that's gone quickly well it's the uh, fun of having uh, dell of the century oh, uh, clearly yes and the listener liked it as well uh, back next week uh, at the usual time this weekend it is the first round of the vln uh, Johnny Palmer uh, will be leading that. Uh, 10.15 if you're in the UK. Excellent. Uh, so listening for that, a uh, big entry list as ever. And I'm sure there'll be even more to talk about at the end of that race than there was uh, when we were looking at it just a few moments ago. Thanks, Tim. Thanks to all of our guests. Uh, back next week, same time. And, uh, well, there's no time to explain because the llama's off to the Eiffel. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.